You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting to Yes And. So my guest today is Liz Tran, who is the founder of Reset, an executive coaching company to CEOs and founders. Before founding Reset, Liz spent a decade working in the tech industry, most recently as the only female executive at a leading venture capital firm. She is a trained meditation teacher, and Reiki master and studied yoga at the Samyak Ashram. And she's got a new book. It's called The Karma of Success, Spiritual Strategies to Free Your Inner Genius. Uh, I think you're going to love the pod. Stay for the SN story. It's a good one. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by Thank you for having me, Kelly. I'm very excited to be here. I would love to start our conversation with a story you tell early on in your new book. So you're having something of an existential crisis. We've all been there. Uh, and this is in your job and in your marriage. This is about 10 years ago, I think. And you find yourself in an ashram in northern India. <laughs> yes. A little <laughs> cliche. <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. But I want you to tell us like what happened, especially when you sort of ran in to the, you know, jungle, the forest, whatever. And, uh, but, but tell us a little bit of how you got there and, and what happened. Yeah. So the whole trip was, um, it just really unfolded in a way that I didn't expect. I had gone on this trip with my then husband and we were like, we're going to travel together. We're going to work together. We're going to write a book together. Um, and then at a certain point we realized, um, we, we don't want to do the same things. And so I went to India and he went to Thailand and, um, we thought, let's just separate for a month and see what happens. And it was during that month that I just sort of let the flow of life take me to different places. <laughs> I signed up for this yoga teacher training. Um, I went to go see, you know, a healer that a friend had recommended just sort of by chance. She said, you know, I think you'd like this woman named Brona who's Irish, maybe you should meet her. And I thought, yeah, okay, sure. Why not? And, you know, I think in the spirit of the podcast, I said, yes. And, mm -hmm. and I really didn't even know what I was getting into, but there's this intuition within me that said, you should do this. Um, and so I showed up, I had no idea what we were in for. I'd never experienced anything like this. And what she helped me do is to basically meditate, to get into a state where I could really hear my intuition um, and really get in touch with what it was I really wanted, get some clarity on what I was doing. Um, and I heard with such clarity that um, I needed to trust myself more. That was essentially the message is that I had up to this point 
and very much living um, based on what the expectations of other people were. You know, I sort of shaped my life um, to be what I thought looked really good on paper. And I didn't really have a muscle in exercising what I really wanted. Um, and as I walked out of the session, I got lost in the woods. I was like, okay, this is weird. Um, maybe I should listen to what I heard in the session and just keep trusting. Mm. So I was walking further and further into the jungle, totally lost. I was on a little bit of a trail, but the trail was disappearing step by step and the sun mm-hmm. was setting. I was a little worried about what was happening. Um, and then out of just the corner of my eye, I heard, I saw, I saw a flash of color and I heard a sound. Um, and then it was this beautiful wedding party that was actually going through the woods and they were playing instruments and they were carrying the bride and the groom on a dais. Um, and they sort of just looked at me and smiled. And then I followed them out. <laughs> I kind of trailed behind them at a polite distance. And when we came out onto the road, I realized I was actually right by the place I was staying. Um, and it seemed like such a small moment, but it was so beautiful and surreal and almost like this punctuation point um, to the message I was trying to receive, which is that, you know, data information, those are all great. You know, I've always been very much an analytical person, Mm -hmm. but I'd also been missing on this really magical treasure of listening to my own instinct and intuition. I didn't know how to do that. Um, And so now this book that I've written 10 years later is very much um, an ode, um, an admiration of how, you know, the past 10 years of like, you know, still listening to data, but also knowing the importance of intuition has wound up being with my career, with the work I do coaching CEOs, um, and hopefully with people who read the book. It seems so obvious, right? <laughs> I mean, like, like from where we sit now, for those of us who've been on this journey. And yet, if you look at the way our educational systems are set up, you look at how corporate training rolls out, there is very little light that's shed on our inner experiences. And however, I, I don't know a great leader who hasn't, you know, drawn from that to to lead greatly. Yeah, it, it's, I completely it's, agree. And, and so, so I mean, in what you talk about a lot in the book, and, and it fits in terms of your journey as this duality, and, and you write in the book, quote, our work selves and our home selves are not separate beings. This is a huge thing that we talk about here, which is like, I don't understand how we show up at work and we're expected to drop our humanity at the door. Like, that's our superpower. Why would you not want someone to bring their superpower? And yet we've seen it time and time again. It might be changing a bit now. I think we thought it might change more because of COVID. And then there's been this sort of backlash to it. But I wonder if you could expose, uh, talk a little bit more about this regard to these these. An idea of multiple selves, because I think a lot, again, a very Western idea is that, no, there's just one true self. And I think a lot of other religions and spiritualities and, and, and even some science shows us, no, there's like many selves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an interesting thing because I, I grew up fairly non-spiritual. I was kind of raised Catholic. We kind of went to church sometimes, but um, I came to understand Buddhism in, in my um, as an adult, <laughs> you know, I started reading about it for the first time and um, going on meditation retreats. Um, and I kind of always thought before this that I was just this person with a to-do list to get done. And then beyond that, like goals that I was trying to check off. Yeah. Um, and I sort of thought that was like the point of life. Like you 
basically just go from one goal to the next. When you've accomplished that goal, you figure out the next thing. So, you know, you go to college then you get a job, you figure out your career, you marry someone, you have some kids. Um, and you know, there's a natural progression of just this ascension of things to do. Um, and what is actually underlying that, that is so much more rich and beautiful and actually true to the human experience is, yeah, we're like physically doing all these things, but also at the same time, we're on this journey where we are learning and growing. And even though, you know, you can't necessarily quantify it or put it on paper, that's the important stuff. Like that's actually the real stuff that's happening. Um, and I think the same thing is true at work where, yeah, there's like OKRs or performance indicators to hit every quarter, right? Or goals to set and hit for yourself. Um, but what's actually really important is like, what's the human stuff of how you're learning, how you're growing, how you're evolving, um, and whether or not, you know, you feel deeply connected to the work that you're doing. Um, and that's where I distinguish between like the internal and the external mechanical work versus intuitive work. Mechanical work is all the stuff that you can see on the surface, that you can measure, that you can quantify, that you can compare to someone else. Whereas intuitive work is when a person goes inward and they decide to define what success means to them individually, not through the eyes of society or any expectations. Um, so for you, Kelly, like maybe success, you know, does mean a certain number of, you know, podcast downloads, but there's a deeper, richer meaning, um, that's probably around, you know, sharing ideas that other people haven't had or hadn't seen and like letting those impact the way they live their lives. And so there's, that's always that dichotomy where like, there's what you see on the surface, but there's also like a richer, deeper layer of meaning where if we can bring that into work, then we're pretty unstoppable. Yeah. And a very practical orientation around that is something that improvisation teaches and that you talk about too in the book, which is when you're improvising, you are taught to be fiercely in the moment. You cannot linger in the past. You cannot play around the future. All you have is the person across from you and your job is to save them and their job is to save you. An incredibly healthy way to live your life. And it's not ignoring these things of the past and you're building together that thing from the future. Um, but it, but it requires you to be listening and really listening and deeply present. Um, and that is not, especially in the world we live in right now and, and something that for, for young people who've been affected by COVID and, and, and other things and social media and all that. It's hard. It is hard to do that. And, and yet I think your, your spiritual traditions that you've sort of attached yourself to, and as well as the data that we understand coming from psychology, neuroscience, behavioral science, all that, it all points to the same thing. Yeah. I, I was so excited to talk to you today because I think the parallels between improvisation, um, and some of the stuff that we talk about in the book are so clear and so beautiful. Um, because, you know, you, you can't show up when you're in improvisation and not trust yourself, nope. right? You don't have, there's no time to second guess, like, well, where is this coming from? Is this a valid thought? Like, what is this person going to think of me? Um, what does this mean about my childhood that I'm thinking this right now? Like, what, what does this like, do I, is, is this something I expected? Like, is this who I really am? Um, and that kind of lack of, um, self-consciousness almost, and just really trusting that, like, 
in the process and in yourself, both of those things I think are really deeply related to what I'm talking about too, where, um, you know, at work, of course we should have a plan. Um, Mm -hmm. but if we don't also respond, um, to what's happening around us, then we're at like, you know, if you don't, if you're not able to let go of the plan and just surrender sometimes, then, um, then you're at a huge disadvantage. Well, and I think this is the mistake people often think is that these improvisers are are literally just like, oh no, they're ad libbing. They're, they they have no, they are practiced in this skill. They are drawing mm-hmm. upon a deep wealth of data, and the data that they're drawing from is all the things from their life that they've you know whether it's uh, people and characters and ideas and you know all of that gets drawn in just like it does in business. And, and, you know, what many people talk about now is, is we work at, in an unprecedented way, right? It's, it, the change is coming so fast. I mean, two years ago, we were not, we were dealing with these language models with this AI stuff that's coming in, completely changing it. If you're a good improviser, um, then you're like, fine, okay, let's, let's see what we have to play with and work with, and we can sort of shift and, and, and pivot. And if you are in judgment of self and judgment of others, it's not going to work. And that's a thing you talk about too, is this, and, and this is a thing very for, for your life too, because I thought it was interesting. You say in the book quote, since before I could read, I considered my lack of money to be the root cause of all my problems. I guess a very profound understanding of a place that you come from and, and that you really, I imagine you had to work hard to change that frame. Yes, <laughs> I did. Yeah, I, I really did. And part of that too was, um, you know, listening and responding to what was happening around me because, um, that frame, you know, I always say, you know, what got you here won't get you there. doesn't mean that like the, the beliefs that we had that helped us previously are going to continue to help us in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, and this belief really powered me through much of my, um, like my formative years of growing up, going to school, academia, getting a career. Um, but then this like correlation between happiness and money, it only got me so far. And then when I reached the end of it, I was like, wait, okay, I have stability. I have, I was working at a venture capital fund. Um, I was the the only female executive there. You know, I was making like half a million dollars a year in my early thirties. And I thought this is, this is great. This is like the money I need to take care of my family, do what I need to do. Um, But it was also really not a life that I had chosen for me. It was sort of like this life I had set up for an idealized version of what I thought I wanted. Um, and then that sort of propelled this whole journey starting in my mid thirties to start life all over again and kind of build again from scratch. Um, and it was in questioning some of those former assumptions, like, is it true that money is what actually makes things smooth and easy and peaceful? To a certain extent, yes, but then also really no. And also that's a choice that I don't want to make. Um, and so I think that, you know, always questioning, um, things that we even think to be core beliefs is so powerful. And sometimes we think, yeah, I'm going to hold on to that core belief. That still feels good to me. And other times you're like, well, this core belief seems like it's not really helping me anymore. Yeah. And this is, it's interesting. The last few podcasts I've had, because I just interviewed Amy Edmondson for the second time and she's got a new book about, she coined the term psychological safety. She's got a new book about failure. And she and she goes at length, especially talking about psychological safety and saying, you know, m- maybe I wish I was a little bit more um, uh, um, thoughtful around the inequities that certain people have who, who, you know, are not in the place to even play around with psychological safety. So 
yes, I mean, the uh, Maslow hierarchy of needs is at play here. We, we need to feel safe. We, we need to have food. Uh, all those things are important. But I, I grew up in a very wealthy suburb and, and grew up very comfortable. And so it was very clear to me early on that um, money did not buy happiness. Right. <laughs> Zero correlation of that between the people that I knew of tremendous wealth and the people who, who without. Um, so yeah, we want to cover all that, but at a certain at, at, at a certain point, it, it's not going. Once your sort of basic needs are covered and you're comfortable, it's a whole but a bunch of other things. And I think some of the science we're learning is a lot of it is relationships. You know, those, those, and, and one of the things I love about improvisation and, and not, I mean, I've worked on meditation practices. I've studied Buddhism as well. All those things. One of the things I love about um, improvisation is it's always in community. So that, that idea of being present and listening is always with like four or five, maybe sometimes 10 people around you. And that's very representative of how we normally live in the world. We're not, we're even when we're by ourselves, we're not alone. And it was interesting that you talked a bit about sort of generational trauma and playing with that. And we had on, um, uh, Ranjay Galati was on uh, the podcast and his wife, Anu Galati, had an entire book about generational trauma, which was fascinating to me. And uh, I brought it into my therapist and we had these very <laughs> conversations because it's a real thing. Yeah. And I don't think, I, I don't think, I think people might understand that with, re- with regard to the Holocaust and slavery and some of that, but it is true for humans. So can you talk a bit about how you sort of made that discovery? Yeah. Um, yes, I can. So just by way of background, um, I am from Vietnam. So my, my family's from there. I, I was born in Pennsylvania, but my mom grew up in Vietnam. She was 17 when she came to the States. Um, and she was very surprised to end up here. You know, she thought she had her whole life planned out. Like she never planned on working. She didn't know how to do anything. She had a house full of people to help her cook and clean and things like that. Um, so she didn't actually even know how to like make an egg on the stove or boil water until she moved to the U S. Wow. Um, and, and so I think she had a, a hard time adapting. Um, and previously before then, um, my grandparents' generation, the generation before that, had been mired in actual war. Right. You know, Vietnam is a has been colonized pretty um, pretty consistently, like over the course of multiple centuries. So, the Japanese, the Chinese, the French, etc., and then the war with uh, with the U.S., where we were sort of like in proxy with the U.S. Um, and so, when Saigon fell, mm-hmm. my mother's family had to come to the U.S. very suddenly, um, and. Um, she really carried with her this feeling that, um, you know, life could be uprooted at any moment and the things that you expect to happen, um, aren't going to happen. Um, and it was the same thing with my grandparents, you know, growing up with such uncertainty and war, um, they very much felt like our job here is not to be happy. Our job is just to try to prepare for Mm -hmm. the worst at all times. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, you know, I grew up very poor, but in a lot of ways I was really lucky, like, I went to this amazing public school system um, outside of Washington, D.C. It's like the second best public school system in, in the country. Um, I had family around, you know, my cousins and my uncles and aunts. Um, and I had a brother who I love very much. Um, and so there was a lot of consistency. And I, you know, was really given a lot of opportunities for my teachers. Um, but as I grew up, I always had this feeling that um, life was supposed to be really hard. And that like, it wasn't supposed to be enjoyed. Um, and I am 
pretty certain now that I picked that up from my family and, you know, not just my mom, but my grandparents and then the lineage before then. Um, and it was kind of a wild thing because I had this realization with a bunch of people who worked in tech of all places. And Mm. so, um, my executive coach at the time, um, pulled a bunch of us together for what's called a family constellations workshop. Um, and kind of one by one, you looked at all these people who, you know, on the surface had a lot of privilege, you know, it was like VPs at meta by that back then it was Facebook. Um, you know, people who were like heads of engineering or product at fast growing startups, um, you know, people of all colors, all walks of life, men, women. Um, and what you realize is that no matter what privilege you have, there is some generational trauma that is hiding somewhere in the shadows. Um, and it's actually quite simple to try to reverse it, which is just to acknowledge that it's there and to secondarily say, oh, you know what? This isn't mine. I don't actually have to keep being the proponent of this. I don't have to keep carrying this forth. Um, and one of the most beautiful moments of that session was um, the facilitator. She had me kind of like, she had people in the room sort of act out. I mean, this is a kind of interesting for um, improvisation. because She assigned roles of each of my you know family members to people who were in the room. And she had us you know, stand in ways that symbolized our relationship. Um, and then she physically had me turn away from my family, you know, like from the inherited generations and turn towards, you know, my future, my future children. Um, and she said, you know, you're going to be the person who turns us all around and your children and their children will never have to experience this specific inherited form of trauma. Um, and it was really beautiful because, um, I'm actually pregnant now for the first time. Oh, great. And, <laughs> yeah, it's great. I'm going to have a kid in January. And more than anything is this feeling of like, wow, this is so cool that I get to break this pattern for this child. And it almost feels like, you know, I've had a great run career-wise and professional and I plan to keep going. Um, but it sort of feels like more than anything, like maybe part of the reason why I'm here is to turn this all around so that she and then like her kids never have to experience that. That's interesting. Um, uh, what I would did some therapy around trauma and we did EMDR. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I've done it before too. Okay. Like, and, and, and my son has been doing it and it has been very powerful. And, yes. and part of what I sort of latched into when we started talking about, again, cause I grew up really comfortable. I mean, youngest of six, six kids, you know, um, uh, but my parents both had terrible childhoods, lots of poverty. My dad actually ran away from home when he was 16. So on the streets of Boston, um, my mom, very, very bad sort of situation and sort of carrying some of those ideas of carrying them through. And then with my own kids and sort of that being like, okay, so this might be something to explore. And, and I think the thing that we, this is a, again, such a Western thing, which is we don't consider how uh, trauma lives in the body. Mm-hmm. It's like, we're just like, we're just waking up to this, this idea with Bessel van der Kork's work and some other folks, but it, it was certainly not part of the lexicon for, for me growing up. And even as recently as like 10 years ago, eight years ago, that was not something that people were talking about. And it has been a fundamental thing for me in terms of moving through trauma, moving through grief and making myself feel like I can be sort of whole in the universe matching like my, my brain's always been, been pretty good, you know, and, but I've really had to, had to work on this and, and the results are like, they're 
palpable. Yeah, 100%. And it makes me think about the work of um, that book that came out recently, um, The Myth of Normal by Gabor yeah. Mate, which mm-hmm. owes a lot to, um, you know, the body keeps the score. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was so cool is that um, he was talking about how he made a lot of these realizations for himself um, in the second half of his life. Right. You know, and even at, in his 70s is like making revelations that he didn't realize. And I think that's actually the most powerful part is that. I think maybe for our parents' generation beyond that, they didn't know there could be a different way than what they had learned. Mm-hmm. But now people are like what you're talking about, so much more even pliable and flexible and saying, oh, you know, maybe I can do this differently. And I think that actually ties into improvisation as well as like this right. idea of, um, yes, there's like a frame and a structure, right? Like an yes. agreement. Yep. Yep. Um, but within that, there is a lot of fluidity and flexibility. Tons of room. Yeah. Lots of room. It's the same thing with our lives. Like, yes, we've learned a certain way, but let's play around with it. (laughs) You know, let's create something different. Let's make up new rules for ourselves. And I really believe that that is true with career. It's like, yeah, you've learned a certain way of like what you think is successful, but you know, make it fun. Do it your way. You talk about this, this idea of play. So I want to talk to you about that. And and also I I feel we are both nerds about this stuff. You, (laughs) uh, you, you, uh, I hadn't heard of uh, Yerkes Dotson law, which I love. And the idea being there that it states that taking your endeavors too seriously actually works against you. Um, And I found that very powerful and cool. And, and in our work, it it is, it's play centered, but it's very serious play. Yes. Yes. Definitely. It's very intentional. Um, I do this with my clients too. So I coach CEOs and founders. Um, and sometimes when they are, um, in the worst, most serious place where, you know, according to, you know, the Yerkes Dotson law, where they've crossed over into the zone of burnout, stress, et cetera. Um, and they're, you know, prefrontal cortex is not working properly. Like their cognitive functions of creativity and problem solving just start to shut down because they're too stressed out. They're too overwhelmed. Um, I think it's fun to just joke around sometimes and laugh about what's happening because that's kind of the only way to snap out of it. And, um, you know, I always love that quote that I'm going to butcher, but it's um, how Einstein said that, you know, a problem cannot be solved with the same type of thinking that was used to create it. Um, And I really believe that where sometimes when you're in the most serious and dire of situations, the only way out of it is to fundamentally shift your thinking and to almost like laugh at yourself to regain that playful state where, you know, even neurologically you're, um, you shift out of fight or flight and you can be in rest and digest again and actually come up with creative solutions to that problem. I think I might be butchering this quote, but I think it was Suzuki who said, um, these things are too, uh, these things are too important to take seriously. Oh, I love that. That's so good. <laughs> well, and, and again, that, that, um, and, and I'm reading Francis Frey and, uh, Ann Morris's terrific, uh, uh, new book, which is called, um, move fast and fix things. And Francis is a Harvard professor and uh, I've had on the podcast before, but as so much of her, this book is about putting yourself in a, in a curious frame. And we talk about with our work is you need to replace blame with curiosity. And when you can do that, which again, seeds judgment, seeds the need to be right, all those things that get in the way of, because we're not, let's just be honest about the, the, the situation at hand, which is we don't see the whole picture. There is no way, no way for any one individual to be able to 
move all the garbage away and, and see that. So we need other people. We, if things are complex and they change so that we need to be able to change that frame later on. And these are really difficult skills, even for individuals uh, to, to accomplish, let alone groups of individuals. Yeah, 100%. But isn't it so much more fun to be learning with other people and trying oh, to yes. out with other people? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. And and um, lest people think that your origin story was the Siddhartha moment where you just were all enlightened and everything was fine. Um, <laughs> you, you, you built a company and COVID happened. You know, I worked at a company and COVID almost put us under, even though we've been around forever. So this was like, you got presented with another hardship. And I love that you talk about what sort of got you through is this core idea, which is something we've studied with the behavioral scientists at, at University of Chicago we work with, is gratitude. Yes. Uh, gratitude, it sounds so cheesy, but it really yeah, is. But it's so important. It's so good. It's so good. It changes everything. Um, yeah. So I, just to catch everyone up, you know, I was working in venture capital and having a little bit of this moment of, is this really what my life is about? Is just like working 14 hour days just to try to make rich people even more money. Right. And it seemed a little empty and a little hollow when I framed it that way. Um, and so I took everything I had saved up and I put it into creating a business in New York, um, where we had this really beautiful physical studio that we spent like a couple hundred thousand dollars renovating. Um, and it was this beautiful space that was intended, um, to bring people together for Mm -hmm. workshops and for learning and growing. So during the day, I'd have corporate clients come like people from Facebook, you know, people who worked in tech and I would guide them in team building workshops. Um, and then at night I would sort of open it up for general public classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were all about how to explore, you know, the ontological self, who are you, who are you becoming? Um, and, you know, way of helping people who were at crossroads in their lives. Um, and the business did not make money at all for six months. And it was just so expensive. I had not anticipated how hard it was to kind of get that type of traction. Um, and finally at the six month mark, we started making a little bit of money and I was like, okay, I'm $140,000 in debt, but you know, I can see myself slowly chipping away and paying all the stuff back if I yeah. just keep going. Um, and was starting to feel better again. And then it was March 17th and New York city said no in-person gatherings mm-hmm. for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. So I packed everything up. I put it in storage, had to lose a lot of money, even more money on the deposit yeah. of the space because the landlord actually wanted it back too. Um, and, um, and I didn't have a business. It was all about gathering people, which was the surefire way to spread COVID. Um, and I had to really think about what I was doing. And at that point, I thought, okay, I've worked my whole life to get out of poverty. Like literally my whole life since I was like five years old, I've been yeah. on this focused on this goal. I did it. And then in a year, I ruined my whole life. I spent all yeah. my savings. I got back into debt. Um, and then I didn't have a job. You know, I didn't have work to do. Um, and I started to keep a gratitude list like that actual day that we packed up the studio because there seemed like there was so little to be grateful for. Mm-hmm. that I needed to really focus on it just to get myself to feel better. Um, and it changed everything. You know, I would give gratitude for like a $2 cup of coffee. Cause I was like, Oh, I can afford this. This is good. I would give gratitude because, you know, a friend called and checked in on me. I give gratitude for a good night's sleep. I would give gratitude for my dog. 
And it started to turn things around where I started to notice that there were actually opportunities in this moment. And that it wasn't all just darkness and failure um, and misery that, oh, you know what? Oh, I'm grateful because I have some time. I'm grateful because I can teach myself how to write now. I'm grateful because you know, for the first time in my life, I don't have to be working 14 hours a day. Um, and what came of it was that within a year of that experience, I had paid back all of my debt. Um, I had a full roster of coaching clients. Um, and I also had a book deal, which is the book that is, that is here now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that if I hadn't had that lens of gratitude, it would have been really easy to slip into blame, right. Instead of curiosity, as you said, like blaming myself, blaming COVID, blaming, you know, my previous employer, blaming so many different people, but it, the gratitude was that vessel to transform it into curiosity of, oh, what advantages are here? What opportunities are here? What do I still have at my disposal? Um, and then when I look back at that year, at first I was like, this is hands down worst year of my life. I would say that I was like, this is the worst year, 2020. I hate this year. This is the worst year. And now I look back and I love that year. <laughs> it feels like that yeah. was the year that turned me into who I am today. And now it's only, you know, three years later. Um, but I feel like a completely different person because of it. Uh, my, my collaborator, uh, at university of Chicago was a woman, a scientist named Heather Caruso. She's now at UCLA. And I love her, her metaphor for this, which is when you think about these kinds of evolutions, um, in one's life and work, um, it's a little bit like when you go to the gym, if it doesn't hurt, it's not working. <laughs> so, so this is what it is, you know, and, yeah. and the, that, that heart, it is hard work and, and, and finding joy and finding gratitude. Those things are hard. They're not easy. And I wish we had a better term for soft skills. It, it, it does not speak to truly how important, how hard. And, be, and I think more and more people understand that's why they hire us. I mean, it's not, no, no one's hiring us for our data. They are literally being like, who are the masters of getting people in a room who can get people to improvise and play and navigate uh, complexity. And that, and that's us. And it's a multi-million dollar business here. Just, just with the work that we do in the corporate sector, let alone the shows and all the other stuff. Um, but it is, it is this idea around um, being, you know, we have a phrase, see all obstacles as gifts. Mm, mm-hmm. And when you can look at these things like, okay, what is the gift I'm getting in this moment? It's like, it kind of seems like a crappy gift. And you tell that wonderful, um, I think it's a Buddhist story of the, the, the horse and the farmer. You want to <laughs> yeah. share that? Cause I think it's, if people haven't heard it. It's great. Yeah. I'd love to share that story. It's, it's definitely apropos. Um, so uh, there's a farmer and he had a horse Um, and one day his horse ran away and everyone in the town said, oh, what bad luck. You know, you needed that horse to plow the fields. And the farmer just said, we'll see, you know, he didn't, he didn't fall prey into thinking, oh, this is the end of my, end of my life. Um, and then the next day his, um, son went, went out and he actually found, um, not just the horse that ran away, but he found two other wild horses that were with that horse and he brought them back. So suddenly the farmer had tripled the number of horses he had. And everyone in the village said, oh, what great, you're so blessed. The farmer said, we'll see, you know, very neutral. Mm -hmm. Then one day the son was out riding one of the new horses, this beautiful, beautiful horse. And the horse threw him and he broke his leg. And knowing that the farmer needed the son to work in the fields, 
all the villagers said, oh, what bad luck. This is terrible. And again, the farmer just said, we'll see. Then a week later, the army came into town and they were conscripting all the young men um, to join the army for battle. But because the son's leg was broken, he was exempt and he could stay there with his father. And then this point, the villagers like, this is unequivocally good luck. What a blessing. This is amazing. What could be better? And again, the farmer just looked at them and he said, we'll see. And that's the whole story, which, you know, I always think about that whenever feels like my world is turning upside down um, and, or with my clients, you know, thinking that the world is turning upside down. And then you have to remind them that, you know, maybe this isn't happening to you, but perhaps this is happening for you. Sure. And change is the only constant. Yeah. Everything is always changing. Um, And that's actually what I believe to be the number one skill these days. And I agree with the term soft skill. It's like not appropriate for how challenging these things actually are. Um, And I don't actually think it's about how smart a person is or how competent. I truly believe it is just about the ability to adapt, to change uncertainty and the unknown. Yeah, I, I agree. All right. In a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes hand story, but I want to get your advice on something. Okay. So I interviewed Michael Gervais uh, for the podcast. So Michael is a psychologist and probably best known. He hosts the Finding Mastery podcast, and mm-hmm. he was with the Seattle Seahawks for eight years as sort of the psychological coach, and they won a Super Bowl, and he's worked with a lot of sports people. So I got – I'm going to be on his podcast. He asked me to be on his podcast, and you have to answer um, your definition of mastery. Oh, Wow. And you, you write in in the book, quote, success comes from the mastery of failure. Yes. I kind of love that. Uh, (laughs) I I would, I would like you to talk more so it can help me with what my response is going to be. So the big myth is that success comes from, um, the mastery of skill, right? That, um, we can only be successful if we are amazing at something, And I think that that myth dissuades people from trying, right? Because let's say you start and you're bad at something, which we all are. Then the thought is, I'm never going to be good at this. I should just give up now. Um, But the reframe is that all of those failures are getting you closer to where you want to be in the future. Every single person who has succeeded in anything great has failed at least a hundred times more than that. You know, I think about you know, Melanie Perkins, who's, you know, a, a, almost a billionaire. And she started a company and she was rejected 300 times when she raised capital. You know, James Dyson had 1700 prototypes for his vacuum cleaner. Um, I tend to think that I've failed more than most people I know. And the other day, someone was like, tell me about your failures. And I started talking and I didn't stop for like 15 minutes. And they're like, okay, that's not, that's good. But I was like, I can start from like sixth grade. Like let's, let's go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see all those as stepping stones to getting to where you are because you cannot succeed unless you've sort of tumbled your way to the top. Um, and so that, that, that statement of success comes from the mastery of failure. It is my way of telling people that if you feel like you are struggling, that you're not good, um, or that, you know, you are failing, um, consider it a good thing. Because that means that you are on your way. Um, it's exactly what you said, where if you go to the gym and it doesn't hurt, then you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> you're doing it wrong. Yeah. You're, you, you're going to, you got to write that crappy first draft. Yeah. I mean, I, 
you know, I, I look back at, you know, early podcasts or early writing and I'm like, oh, you know, what was I doing? It's like, but that's, that's what I did. And, and no one was thinking that when I did it then. And be, I shouldn't be sad that I'm wiser now. I shouldn't be, this is all, this is, it's all good. It all got us to this place. And you do the best you can with what you have in the moment in that, but that requires a, a really profound release of ego um, uh, the, a, a, a not relying on knowledge purely mm-hmm. all these things that are anathema culturally, the cues we've been given from TV, from film, from our parents and our teachers, you know, are as some, sometimes at odds with all these things that these discoveries that we're making now in terms of, yeah, what makes a fulfilled, happy person? And I think I, you're a little lucky that your midlife crisis came in your thirties. My, mine came in my <laughs> uh, late forties. Um, it was a more, more dangerous time for me, but it worked out. You know, it did that. I would not, I mean, I literally quit my job at second city, my dream job with nowhere to go. And it is the only, I said this the other day to our CEO, my, the, my boss here, I said, the reason I'm here is because I quit. Yes. It's the only reason I'm here. If I had, if I had stayed, I would have been gone and not in a good way. Yes. And, and so they, like understanding that, that as painful as that was at the time, it's like, it's, it's, it was all somehow, I don't, I don't really believe in fate so much. Um, but I certainly believe it's, it's, it's part of whatever the, the larger story is. 100%. And I think um, it's really important to tell people that and to be really vocal about those experiences because yeah. um, otherwise they think they're doing something wrong. Right. You know, they're, they're like, oh, and they stop themselves before they can clear the failure part and get to the mastery part. You know, they, they pre- preemptively um, shut the door on themselves and say, no, I can't do this even before it's proven to be true. That's right. Uh, all right. We always end the podcast asking for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? I have one. This is my favorite yes and story because it was so different. I usually would always say no. So um, about five years ago, then um, I had just started dating someone and it was a little on and off. We had a hard time communicating and getting together. Um, I was very structured, very organized. He um, was a little bit more spontaneous and it was a little scary for me because I'm scheduled. Um, and one day we said, you know, he had seen a cargo ship from an airplane and he saw it floating in the middle of the Atlantic. And he thought, wouldn't this be cool to travel across the sea by ship to really experience what distance feels like? Cause we know it through cars and planes, but like really to feel it the way our ancestors did when they were on ships. And I was like, yeah, that sounds amazing. And um, I had a couple glasses of wine. So I said, let's do it. Let's go on a cargo ship. Um, and he said, okay, great. And then we woke up the next morning. Um, and he said, cargo ship question mark. And I said, yeah. Um, and we wound up booking a sailing that was departing in two weeks uh-huh. and we would be on that ship for 10 days without internet, without phone service, without really any other passengers, just the crew. Um, and just us. And we really didn't know each other it was going to be our 10th date on the cargo ship. We'd never, wow. it was so early on in our relationship. Um, and every part of me was saying, this doesn't make sense. This is not logical. Um, the probability that it's not going to work out is actually pretty high. Think about your track record with dating. Um, but then there's this one voice that was like, yes. And this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. <laughs> 
Yes. And this could be an adventure. And so it was like, yes, this is probably a horrible idea and it could also be amazing. And so it was actually just that like, yes. And of Mm -hmm. yes, acknowledging that, um, that, you know, on paper, it was probably a horrible idea, but, and there was a sliver that this could also be the greatest story of my life. Um, and one, the, and part one out. Um, and then that was the person who I married and he's my husband and has been my greatest supporter in all ways. Um, and I really owe everything to like the, and, because I think the yes was like, yes. Okay. I'm acknowledging all these things are true. And also let's see that there's something magical that could happen here. That I love it. And, and because indeed the yes is the easy part. That's actually not that hard. It, it, the hard thing is, is, is the end, which is the reframe. How, how do I, this all, because if we were logical, we would never have kids. It's painful <laughs> and it's hard and you're, and you're going to be, you're, you know, you're not going to sleep for a while and, and you're not going to be able to go to movies and concerts and things like that for a while. And all that, like, we like getting married and all those things is often not lo- like the best stuff is not logical. It doesn't look good on paper. The cost benefit ratio is not solid. And so that idea of allowing to live in the and is really creating that space for play and curiosity that we talked about, which is where all this good stuff is. And the, and the good stuff often hurts. And that's the, that's part of the reason that we, we don't like to go there, but you know, there is no joy without suffering. There's no suffering without joy. Yeah. You know, it feels almost like a little bit of a leap. Like that's the way I experience it physically is like a little bit of a, almost like I'm stepping into like a, something that's a little too big for me or something that I need to grow into. Um, and I've started to just try to recognize that feeling as a good thing versus a scary thing. The book is called The Karma of Success, Spiritual Strategies to Free Your Inner Genius. Liz Tran, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Kelly. Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Oridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
survive.